If you will find Second uh, Peter chapter one, and we will look at Second Peter chapter one verse today, as we make our journey through the book of Second Peter. In Second uh, Peter chapter one verse ten, uh, Peter writes, "Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall." Um, honestly, uh, and in uh, great, uh, great respect for the moment in which we are gathered, I, uh, I have, I've, I've wanted to preach this specific verse of chapter one for a while now. At the same time, I've heard it preached wrongly so much in my life that I, I want to make sure I do it right. I want to make sure that that I that I lead you to what it says. And not to what it does not say, because there are a lot of people who use it in such a way that um, that it simply doesn't say that. They will use it to teach a very works-based type of faith in which you can earn your calling, you can earn your election. And simply put, that's not biblically true, and I want to oppose that today. I may not do a great job of it because I'm limited in time, but I want to make sure that I get that out of the way as we start. Now let's begin by saying this. That the apostle commands the church throughout this entire passage. The body of Christ has been the logical audience then and now. In fact, the second word in the passage. Brothers, Adelphi. He's speaking to Christian brothers. He's not speaking to his biological brothers. He's speaking to his brothers and sisters within the church. So all up to this. All up to the therefore has been intended for the church. For those who have been born again by the blood of Christ. Let's not, let's not uh, get beyond that. That God, that, that God through Peter has been speaking to the church. It then says, um, to eagerly confirm their calling and their identity as the chosen people of God. This idea of being confirmed. Confirmation, such an idea that there are Protestant um, and including the Catholic Church and also Protestant denominations that will use the word confirmation for that moment, especially when a young person has, uh, has studied and, and been through a certain process, a catechism class or something like that, where they can now be confirmed to be part of the body of believers. So this is an important deal, and, and other groups have recognized it, the idea of, of, of seeking that proof that you are both called by God and because you are saved, you are chosen of God. So let's, let's, let's explore that. The sentence begins with the word dio in the Greek. Now I'm going to beat you down with a bunch of Greek, but the word dio in the Greek, which is, it's, uh, the root of that is dia, and it literally means to, to, means across to the other side. So there's a direction it's a kind of a pun. I didn't realize so I'm reading it now. It's a direction. It's a pun. A direction in, excuse me, a directive in the, like a direction. It is a, there's a command to arrive at a proper conclusion. The Bible's replete with this. The word if appears more than 5,000 times within the scriptures. So God tells us something. He says, if you do this, this good thing will happen. If you don't do this, this bad thing will happen. If you don't refrain from this behavior, then a bad thing happens. If you do refrain from this behavior, a good thing happens. I'll bless you. So God asks us to engage our brains 
all the time throughout the building of our faith. He leans on the fact that we can, under the blood, be reached with logical assertions. That the scripture that we, uh, that we pronounce or profess to the world to believe, that the truth that we say transforms us, is, seems to us logical and not illogical. Within the logic of God, Christ giving his life for the sins of his people makes perfect sense. We understand why it had to happen. So those are, those are, those are good things. And, and he expects us to engage. So that's all he's doing here. He's saying, look, I've, I've taught you something. Now take the, the, come to the right conclusion. The preceding attributes were the traits that believers should possess in order to supplement their faith in a way that strengthens it for the attacks that are coming. Peter's writing right in line with all the other New Testament authors in teaching young believers, new believers, many of which like us, that life in Christ is very challenging. And there are going to be many more bad, bad days than there are good days. That if you are weak in your faith, then your faith won't be there to sustain you during those dark times. That we need a transforming, transcendent kind of faith just to face the normal things that happen. I'm not in any way playing for pity, but the reality is this, um, and I think I've said this to brothers. I had been with countless people who had buried their fathers. Burying your own is radically different. I thought I was prepared till I had to do it, till I found out I was not prepared at all. At all. I had buried so many fathers, and it did not, did not ready me to bury my own. It did not ready me for the range of emotions, good and bad, that my heart was going to be literally torn up by. Without faith, you crumble under the regular stuff. Regular people are called upon to bury their fathers and their mothers. Regular folks. It happens to everybody if you live long enough. Everybody. Regular people are called on to do this. This is not some extraordinary challenge from the, from the world. This is the normal challenge of the world. And without a faith that's growing... We just simply don't measure up to the task. Without encouraging our faith, we will fail. We will fail. We will fail to do to meet the needs that we must meet. Now, listen. Perseverance is the biblical goal for the church. There's no doubt about that. Perseverance is a biblical mandate by God for us. It is your greatest promise. Not just the fact that you have saving faith in Christ Jesus. Not just the fact that that saving faith in Christ Jesus spills over into eternal life, but the fact that once God has you, He will not lose you. The fact that your faith is held in trust by Christ forever. You are saved not by anything you did, but by everything He accomplished on Calvary. He cannot lose you because it would mean He fails. He has placed our faith and our future firmly on His infinitely broad shoulders. And He did that because He knew we could not be trusted. 
He did that because he knew that if men could lose something, they would lose it. They would lose it. He did that because he absolutely, positively knew that he was infinitely trustworthy and we were not. And we were not. So, so understand that. Your great promise that your life is built on today is best exemplified by the idea of perseverance of the saints. That you will not be lost. You can trust God on that today. And I want to show you just how trustworthy it is. As best I can in a short amount of time. James states in James 1.12, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. James speaks directly of perseverance. When you stand the test, you receive the crown. And God's intention is that every single one of us stands the test and receives the crown. To maintain the entire flock. I mean the church. Universal. Church international. The church global. The church that spans time and place. The church that goes all the way back to Pentecost. That church, to keep that church. To never lose a single sheep. Not one is the stated goal of Christ for the gospel. Our Lord has sent out among the nations His precious gospel, and He's intended for it to do one thing, and He expresses it best in John 6, verse 39. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. So we know perfectly clearly now that the gospel in our lives produces a faith that's so enduring that the will of God is caught up in it and we will never be lost again. It's God's will. For it to not be true, it would mean that God's will has failed. That God is less than we think He is and less than the Bible says He is. So we will persevere because God wills it. Going out back throughout Christendom for a thousand years, God wills it has been the declaration. God wills this. While our perseverance is assured by the will of God and the direct language that our Lord Jesus uses to relate this truth to our heart exemplified in the language of John 10, 28, where he says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. So once we are in the hand of God firmly, we are never to be taken out. Ever. 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 The perseverance. The lasting nature of genuine blood-bought faith in Christ Jesus for the forgiveness of sins and the reception of eternal life is as sure for the church as it's its companion piece, sanctification. The fact that God continues to work on us in preparation that these lives can be sacrificially given. That we can be ceremonially ready. That when we die, when we've tasted our last, when we've breathed our last breath, we can be prepared to go and meet the Savior of our eternal lives. We can be ceremonially ready. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3. And I will, I will make this point and I apologize for it. 
up to the colon. We'll stop at the colon for just a moment. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. We know there's a colon that comes afterwards and he explains it. And we're going to go through that explanation in a minute. But he says very clearly, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. We have a one idea, a one notion, one uh, declaration by God. That our perseverance, our lastingness unto eternal life is the will of God expressed in the gospel made possible by the sacrifice of Christ on Calvary. And on the other hand now, we have the expressed will of God as being what? Our sanctification. The preparation of these lives to, to bear the glory of the image of God. To make, remake us like Him. Not a shadowy reflection, but a glorious edifice of life that only God can do. Not tiny little chips, but the marvelous restoration of a life to an Edenic kind of glory. It'll be dimmed when the corrupt body is disposed of and the incorruptible is raised. But God will do in us fantastic, God-like things that, that only God can do. The ultimate evidence of our faith in Christ is that God does things that only He can do. That's sanctification. Sanctification is the pronounced will of God which is supported in its decree by the work of God the Holy Spirit in purging our lives of sin. Why sanctification works is because that God is working on us through the power of the Holy Spirit. Purges us of the study of scriptures, that we continue to study the scriptures given to us in an errant form. We have both God the Holy Spirit constantly working on us, and we have an inerrant Bible on our laps. We have both all the instruction we need and all the power that could ever be needed, infinite power. Infinite power given over for our sanctification. We have the watch care of the church. In building each other into great edifices of the faith. Now, understand this. The only part of this that is, let's just be blunt. The only part of this formula for our sanctification that can go awry is the watch care of the church. The Holy Spirit will always do what he intends to do. He will never do anything else but that. Because he is constant as the northern star. He will do what he intends to do. The scriptures, their intention by God, as displayed by the gospel, never returns void, always does what it intends to do. The scriptures are an extension of the will of God and the purpose of God related to the hearts of people through words. Through words. But now the church can go wrong in doing it. We can't. We can be caught up in ourselves. We can be dismissive. We can be uh, hard-hearted. We can be all those things that people can be. We can fail to do our job of keeping watch care over, over each other and seeing that we grow. We can fail to do that. We can. In the very same way, within our marriages. Within our marriages. Our marriages are a vehicle of God's sanctification for us. We grow through marriage. A godly wife grows her husband. A godly husband grows his wife. We have that impact on each other. Godly parents grow godly kids. Part of that whole aspect of the church that can go awry. Any one of those little cogs can, can fall away. 
But we still have the power of the Holy Spirit and the power and the inerrant truth and power of the Word of God. We will be sanctified. There's no doubt. Because at least two of those aspects can literally never fail. Ever. Ever. Our sanctification may be delayed by our own stubbornness or hampered by a church and willing to speak or live the truth. Now, I hope that's never said about us. But I'll tell you this much. We better be on watch care of each other and of the pulpit to make sure that it's not. We better make sure that we are always a church that's willing to speak and live the truth. Every time without exception. Because when we fail to do that, we stop becoming a church. We become something else. A club of some kind. Churches speak and live the truth in love. That's what we do. That is our mandate. But it cannot fail because the Lord, God the Holy Spirit, can never fail. And the scriptures will always prevail in what our Lord sends them forth to accomplish. As, as Isaiah 55 verse 11 reminds us. Look, though you may doubt and fear, legitimate faith in Christ always leads to sanctification. And therefore always leads to perseverance. As, as, a, as a friend of mine has always said, it's not once saved, always saved. Something that Southern Baptists are fond of saying. It's if saved, always saved. If you're truly born again, you will be sanctified and you will persevere. And the Bible simply doesn't allow for another conclusion. Sanctification always leads to perseverance. Now, I'll say this, understanding that for sanctification, it can be an unsteady road for a lot of us. I can tell you how many times I've looked at my own life and said, last year I was better at that than I am now. Last year I was less susceptible to that than I am now. Sometimes you feel like you're sliding back down that hill a little bit, don't you? Sometimes you feel like you're not making the progress you ought to make. I'll say this, sometimes life is just harder than others. Sometimes life is more of an obstacle than others. In the midst of our suffering, as we examine our sanctification, do not fear. Do not fear. Instead, rely on Christ. If you rely on Christ in the midst of suffering, if you rely on Christ in the midst of oppression or obstacle, understand this much. He will overcome those things. Guaranteed. However, now, Paul completes his statement. We'll go back to that statement in, in Thessalonians 4.3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. And then a colon in which he explains it. He completes the statement after the colon in verse 3 by defining the heart of this issue in these terms and simultaneously helping to answer Peter's command with a more detailed explanation. So Peter's telling us to, to, to eagerly, eagerly and diligently, eagerly and diligently confirm our calling and our election. Eagerly and diligently confirm those things. And I think Paul gives us a, another piece to that puzzle. It's not complete. The Bible, the New Testament answers it. So many different places. But we'll cover what we can in the allotted time. Sanctification, we just talked about. It's at the heart of confirming calling and election. How is my calling and election confirmed? I mean sanctified. How do I know I'm going to last until the very end and I never have to worry about, about death and darkness and hell again because I'm being sanctified and therefore I'm going to persevere? This is the Bible's language. This is the Bible's progression through these things. It's why it's so important. Sanctification is at the very heart. If we're not actively enjoying sanctification. Now, 
when I wrote that and have time to go back and fix it, we're not always going to enjoy sanctification. What I mean by enjoying it, like you uh, enjoy paying taxes. You get the privilege as a, as a citizen of the United States to help fund this monstrosity. That's your privilege. So you get to technically enjoy it, but it doesn't mean the same thing as getting a lot of joy out of it. Okay. Sometimes sanctification is joyous. Worship is joyous. Bible study and prayer can be joyous. Facing your demons is not joyous. Facing your shortcomings and your brokenness is never joyous. It hurts. Sometimes sanctification is a surgery. And sometimes sanctification is a surgery with a chainsaw. It hurts to the pit of the person. But we go through it because it helps us. If we are not actively enjoying sanctification, then doubts and fears will always persist. For anybody that's ever experienced doubt and fear, the reason why doubt and fear crop up is because they found that void in our lives in which sanctification isn't, is, 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 isn't progressing as it should. And it sprouts up. It grows like a fungus. It doesn't need much to take root either, does it? It's surface level. But it can spread everywhere like mold. It'll be everywhere. It's because it was given opportunity. Sanctification won't allow doubt and fear to grow. When sanctification slows, there's, opportun there's opportunity for doubt and fear. As long as the flesh is a foothold in our lives, we'll be torn up by inconsistency and our boldness daunted by legitimate knowledge of our own moral decline. I've said this before, when the problems with doubt and fear, when the problems with the lack of growing in Christ, it's because the one thing that we want to do that we feel so preached to to do is be bold with our faith. And when you feel like you're caught in sin, you feel like you're not who you should be, feel like you're not growing as you ought to, are you going to be bold? No way. Because you feel like a fraud. Because when you step out in faith, you feel like everybody knows what you did. Even if it's in the darkness and nobody can ever know it. You feel like you are in literally an open book. Self-awareness goes just through the roof. We're all too self-aware. When we're not being sanctified properly and when we feel that moral decline, we feel like we're doing things we should not be doing. We know we're doing things we should not be doing. That's because there's a foothold of the flesh. By using Paul's statement to add more definition to Peter's, we can make one general claim about the preceding verses in 2 Peter 1 and understand the Bible's shared vision to both these passages. So give me just a moment to march you through this and we'll get, we'll, we'll, we're closing rapidly, believe it or not. Beginning in verse 3, godliness is the stated goal for the Christian life, which is the impact of escaping corrupting sinful desires and partaking in the divine nature of Christ as a lifestyle. Verses 3 and verse 4, it's exactly what it says. But just me summarizing it, me paraphrasing God's word. We see godliness. We see godliness because we want to escape corruption for our, from, caused by our sinful desires and, and take part in that divine nature of God where we feel, folks, that intimate closeness. You get what I'm saying? Now, I know we don't talk about that all the time around here, but I think everybody gets it. If there's the kind of the, the shadowy middle age of our faith, it is that we, we've kind of forgotten that spark that causes us to jump out of that seat and walk that aisle and declare faith. Do you understand what I'm saying here? Understand my symbolism? It's like distance in time causes kind of a dimming 
of that understanding. We feel like we've grown apart from a God who's everywhere. Well, you can't grow apart from a God that's literally everywhere you turn. But what can happen is my sight is dimmed. My feelings are stunted. I become more about myself and less about him. All these things, my senses are dulled. That's why I feel distant from my God. And so the aspect of this is how do we light that fire again? How do we, how do we bring about that closeness, that, 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 that really palpable touch of God? I'm reminded of the old you know, southern gospel song. I, I can't even remember the, the exact wording right now. I have to go look it up. But the theme of it is, and maybe the title, I returned to the God of my fathers. The idea that I as a man have drifted, have drifted off course, but now I've, I've corrected that course and I've turned back and I'm going back to where I started. I'm going back to where, so I'm going back to where I belong. I'm going to put my, my feet firmly back on the path and walk the way God's commanding men to walk. After this, um, uh, escaping sinful desires, making the divine nature of Christ as a lifestyle. God has changed now through his word and sanctification how we live. We live differently. Does everybody understand that? Don't get, don't get one step past that. The ultimate proof of our salvation to ourselves and each other is the radical difference in how we live now as opposed to how we lived before. God has given us a new worldview and a new lifestyle. Lifestyle, not a bad, not a worldly word, a very precise word. Then we add to our faith virtue and knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, fastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and then love. The entire episode points us toward a reformed and radically reoriented life that confirms our faith in Christ. All of that work makes us look more like Jesus than we've ever looked before. Makes us act more like Jesus than we were ever capable of. All that work does that. Our position in the body of believers now is evident. And it illustrates the impact of the gospel for the entire world to see. We become a walking testimony. You can't do it without opening your mouth. You can't do it without verbally testifying. But now when you open your mouth and now when you verbally testify, everything in your life looks like it's pointed in the same direction. There are no outliers. There's no escaping for a moment. It all belongs to Christ. While some of the scriptures used indicate that renewal of mind that's essential in the Christian experience, back to Romans 12 too, the others are key to the human flesh and the biblical mandate to control its influence in our lives. From this point forward, we will talk exclusively about the flesh, about the carnal nature of humanity that we must war against, that must be mortified, killed. Paul completes his statement, 1 Thessalonians 4, 3-6, concerning sanctification by writing that you abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. That no, trans, no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. Now first, let me say this. The interpretation 
of this passage is strictly about sexual morality within the body of believers specifically. However, as we know before from sound hermeneutics, every passage has one interpretation and can have many applications. We can turn around and take these principles and now apply them to the flesh in all aspects of our lives and never lose the initial meaning. God spoke to this because he knew just how damaging sexual sin was to the church. And he knew that the church would be destroyed by sexual sin. So God spoke out on it rightly. He knew us better than we know ourselves. But he didn't expect us to stop there. He expected us to go a step farther and apply this to ourselves in general. So even if we are not sexually sinful at this time, we now look at the flesh in general. The great enemy of our tranquility in Christ, of peace in the church, and the gospel work in the world is the flesh of the church. Now, while Paul speaks, I've said this already, speaks of brokenness of sexuality, and I added this, all sexuality in humanity is horrifically broken. None of it honors God except for his creation of sanctified marriage. It's the only way to practice sexuality and practice holiness is within God-created marriage. It's the only way. It's the only way. It's all broken. It's all bad. The only way we can do it is that way. God allowed us that. It takes no great leap to use this passage to confront all avenues in which the natural ways of people corrupt the work of Christ. As believers who are seeking the surety of faith and the satisfaction of a life live for Christ's glory, we'll look back at the passage. First, we must learn to control ourselves in holiness and honor. We are on a path here to learn how to control ourselves in a holy way and in an honorable way. So we're going to look to act holy toward each other and honorably toward each other. Our flesh is not wired that way. Our flesh tells us that you can come into the body of believers and act one way and go out and cheat people in your business. That that's just business, that everything goes there. This says the opposite. That I'm an immoral man if I'm immoral on the outside of the church, but I, but I strive to be moral on the inside. I can't have a sacred, sacred secular divide. We can't indulge emotion. And we should not give in to sinful feelings or give sinful feelings some type of safe quarter in our hearts. We're going to struggle against our emotional selves. We're going to struggle against our deepest passions and some of our deepest convictions. We're going to struggle against those things. The reason why is because they are avenues for Satan to use us to hurt others. So we can't do that. We must struggle. We cannot give sinful feelings any kind of a quarter. I can't go home and, and, and stew in bitterness. You can't hold a grudge against a brother or a sister. Because all that is is an opening for Satan to corrupt your heart. Two, we must acknowledge that we have problems and avoid rampant lust and sinful passions which indulge the rankest and most self-interested aspects of our personalities. Uh, two, two things, and I'll, I'll cover it a little bit more. First, acknowledge you've got issues. Every single one of us 
are called upon every single day to acknowledge just how messed up we are. The day you stop doing it is the day you stop believe, start believing some things about yourself that you shouldn't believe. That you deserve this and not this. Hey, as I've said, there's nothing that will poison your marriage faster than thinking in your brain, I deserve better than this. You start thinking that and you'll believe it. And you start believing that and you believe the devil's lie that wants to destroy everything that God wants to build. We always start off on one baseline. What do we deserve? Hell. We're a collection of people. Every single one of us, our sins demanded that we go to hell. God in his infinite and beautiful joy, for his infinite and beautiful joy, what did he do? He saved us. For love, he saved us. We deserve different. He gave us what we do not deserve. Sometimes we have problems and we have to avoid rampant lust and sinful passions. We've got to keep a lid on a lot of the stuff that is us. Okay? The bad attitudes and the angers and the frustrations. And a lot of the things that have been with us our whole lives, we've got to keep a lid on those things. Because they can indulging them can make us really self-interested. Or can bring out those self-interested aspects of our personality. Look, all of us are at war with the corruption of our personalities and the damage that heartache has caused in our lives. Understand this. Do you know why we can do that? Because there's about 99% of us have had rough lives. About 99% of us have spent our lives, we feel like, being beat up by life. And brothers and sisters, we get heart-chilled about it, don't we? We get hard-hearted about it. And we can let one moment of pain rule over all sorts of, 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 of great teaching from the scriptures. That one moment of pain can come to define us. And we can't be defined by one moment. No matter how bad it was. No matter how terrible. So we, we, we acknowledge this because we realize that a lot of us have... Pitiful stories. I mean, pitiable stories. And it's not a reason for us to be angry with each other. It's a reason for us to love and be tender toward each other. We must love our brothers and sisters and be lenient toward them because mercy is the capital in every relationship. Every relationship you've ever been in in your life ran on mercy. I'd love to say it's love. I wish it was, but it's mercy. Mercy starts to propagate itself in your relationships. And before long, the things that outraged you at one moment now endear you. The things that at one moment made you angry, you now understand. And they are, they are a way for you to show love. I, I know. I know my wife's going to be like this. You know your husband's going to be like this. And at first it drives you crazy. And before long, what does it do? Why don't you love them more because of it? Mercy is the capital in every relationship. And we have to be lenient and merciful toward each other. We should never act in a way toward our brothers that doesn't have their best interest at heart. That's who we are as believers. We look out for each other. Your families have to be as precious to me as mine. And mine has to be as precious to you as yours. Or this relationship doesn't work. It's just a club then. It's never a family. It is a family when we care about each other in that way. When our Christian walk is manifested in a way that rejects 
the old carnal methods and, and begins to see Christ as its true guide and beacon, then we'll have both peace and power. And listen to me, our church will grow. When this happens, when this really happens in our midst, when we really love each other the way we want to and the way we claim to, when we're really merciful toward each other the way we should be, when we care about each other's family the way, exactly the way we care about our own, when that happens, listen to me, we're going to grow. I'll guarantee you that. As a church, finally, we want everyone to have this assurance of faith, to be able to eagerly uh, confirm their calling and election. Nothing can be confirmed that God does not first, that, that, that does not exist by the will of God. So you can't confirm a faith that doesn't exist. If you've never been born again, it can't be confirmed. Christ teaches us exactly how saving faith can be born in your life today as he preaches in John 6, 40. He says, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Salvation is expressed as part of the will of God, for this is the will of my Father. The Lord has spoken, and it is true forever. Look on the Son of God. Open your eyes to the gospel truth that he was virgin born in fulfillment of scripture, that he lived in perfect obedience to the word and will of God, was condemned unjustly, yet never defended himself, died a ghastly death on the cross for the sins of his chosen people, was buried, raised, and triumphantly ascended to the right hand of his father. For he lives to make intercession for those who've seen, heard, and believed the report of the gospel. That is saving faith as best I can relate it. And today, if you will repent of your sins and believe the gospel, you will be saved and have eternal life. That is a gospel promise. Let's pray together.